Welcome to the Keeping It Real podcast. Only tired of fake stuff? Shouldn't we turn down a stale brand of living? It's time to open our hearts to Christ. It's time to keep it real. Here's your host, Ollie G. I, Ollie G, recently gave a message at Mount Eaton Church in the Pocono region of Pennsylvania. So here on the Keeping It Real podcast, we're going to do a slight change up and play that message momentarily. The message is entitled, When Jesus Shows Up, with Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9 as the core passage for the message. Reality has it that when Jesus shows up on a scene, a lot of things get bound to change. If you enjoy this message, and especially if it's of impact to you, I encourage you to download it and share it with your peeps. One more quick note. The Keeping It Real blog has already released several articles, and they will continue to be released weekly at KIRradio.com. If you haven't subscribed to the blog yet, you can do so on the blog page at KIRradio.com. Now let's dive into the message entitled, When Jesus Shows Up. Am I on here? Okay, can you hear me back there? I'm not that cool. I'm not used to using these things, so... But I appreciate the introduction. Uh, Yes, Joe and I have known each other for nearly 25 years and have gotten into our fair share of trouble together. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, the good kind of trouble. Yeah, good to clarify that. Um, Definitely love Rachel. Uh, You know, when when you're looking to invite us over for Thanksgiving, I know there's going to be some slamming food. (laughs) <laughs> there's, there's going to be a feast going on. So thank you so much for uh, the warm intro. Uh, I love this area. My daughter and I, not too long ago, hiked up Ricketts Glen, which I believe is pretty close to here. Uh, I'm convinced it's one of the most beautiful places on the earth, and I've kind of been around. I've been in Europe and Canada. It's beautiful there. And I used to go skiing uh, in my childhood with my dad uh, coming up here. I gave that up some years ago. Uh, I also used to play golf. Don't do that anymore. Uh, But uh, the story was told of a pastor who went golfing on a Sunday morning. He called his elder board up and said, "Uh, I'd like to take Sunday morning off. But he didn't tell them why. He just said, I'd like to take, I'm not going to be able to make it this Sunday morning, but he was going to go play golf. And if you know anything about golf, a hole-in-one is beyond rare. You could play a whole lifetime of golf and never get a hole-in-one. This golfer shows up to the golf course, and in the very first hole, it's a par three, about 160 yards, and he sinks a hole-in-one. So he gets to the second hole, and it's a par four. And this is much further distance. This is about 325 yards. And he gets a hold of this drive, and would you believe it, he gets a hole-in-one on a par four. So the angel Gabriel asks God, Lord, why are you going to go ahead and let him get away with all this? I mean, he was not honest to his elders or to anyone Why are you going to go ahead and let him get a hole-in-one on the first two holes? People play golf all their lives and never get a hole-in-one. Lord tells Gabriel, it's all right, because who's he going to tell? (laughs) So I say that 
just in case your beloved pastor ever decides to take up golf and never gives an explanation as to why he's not here on a Sunday morning. I know he's liking having the week off this week, but somebody's got to ask a question or two. Joe will never take up golf, so you guys got nothing to worry about. I do like golfing, but it's never on a Sunday. Yeah, and you ain't going to get a hole in one anyway, so it don't matter. I'd like for us, if we could, just for a moment, this might be a little bit unorthodox, but I'd like for us to take a moment uh, of silence because uh, chances are some of you, perhaps most of you here this morning, have had a rough week. Anybody here have a rough week before? If your hand doesn't go up, um, I'd like to get your autograph after the service, okay? Uh, Some of us have had a rough year. Some of us have had a rough life. I'd like for us to just take a moment, bow our heads, and ask the Lord to really come down and saturate us with his presence. Lord Jesus, please meet with us in these moments. Whatever part of our lives that has been left unattended to, that has been ignored, may you do a changing because we know that when you show up, things are bound to change that were never on our radar to be changed. In Jesus' name. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. That's how Joe and I got to know one another. And I get, let's go, that's right. And I had a rough childhood. I grew up under a domineering dictatorship style of a father. Verbal and emotional abuse was on the daily for my mother, my sister, and I. There were times where, many a time actually, where I was looking to find out a way, figure out a way how to come out from under it. I would even try and formulate a plan in my young teenage mind of what I could do, where I could go. Maybe I could hitchhike as far away as I could. Maybe I could go to the police and maybe they could help me. Or maybe I could just run away and become homeless and hope somehow it'll work out. And as I was growing up, there was never really any hint of a hope of ever getting any kind of relief for coming out of that until Jesus showed up. Some of you here this morning, maybe you've come here and you're trying to figure out how to come out from under something or how to navigate through something We've already heard some burdens of the heart dealing with health issues and things that are near and dear to our hearts, even international crises. But there may be something going on in your life right now where you foresee something coming up in the near future that you see it out there on the horizon and you would imagine it's going to be hard. This brings us to 
the scripture that's already been read. I'm not going to reread it, but we are going to kind of roll through it methodically. Because the man that we are introduced to in this passage at surface level was not having a rough life. He was an established guy. He had it going on. The Bible describes him as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Most of the general public, if not all of the general public, knew him or knew of him, and they revered him, feared him. They held him in high esteem. We know this because a couple of chapters earlier, we'll refer to that in a few moments, but in Acts chapter 7, we read about the stoning of a man named Stephen. He was Christian. Radical in his faith and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he gets stoned by people who hated him, his opposers, opposers to the kingdom of God, they lay his clothes at the feet of this guy known as Saul. But for now, let's look at just the beginning verses of this passage. First of all, we see that Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And then again in verse 2, it says, after he goes to the high priest, it says that if any were found who were followers of the way, that phrase is pretty important because people who were followers of Jesus Christ back at that time, they weren't described as Christians. They were described as followers of the way. The way, not a way. And that's critical because in a world of public opinion where we think that everybody's okay or there are multiple ways to be right with God, this goes contrary to that. The authority of Scripture goes against worldly views and popular opinion. So they were followers of the way, and Saul wants them dead, but he doesn't only want them dead, he wants them humiliated, embarrassed. Because he appeals to the high priest and he says, I'm interested in having them bound in chains. I want them bound and drugged to Jerusalem. In other words, it's not enough that he just kills them. He wants to make a spectacle of this. He wants to set an example. That if there's anybody else who's looking to be followers of the way or be diligent about being a follower of the way, he wants them to be put on notice. So we see the stage set. Paul who used to be Saul. At this point, he is Saul. And this man, Saul, has had one course of action. Kill Christians. Humiliate them. And he believed he was serving God and doing it. He had one track until Jesus showed up. When Jesus showed up, everything changes. And we're going to see two huge things that change here. The first thing that changes is his position or his posture. In verse 4, it says, He fell 
to the ground because there's this big light. There's this radiant, bright light that, yes, there is a physical element that certainly takes him to the ground here, but it's not physical only. How do we know this? Because it takes him to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he said, who are you, Lord? There is a direct connection to him being on the ground to the question he asks. They're connected. Because he doesn't get up asking the question. He doesn't get back on his high horse asking the question. He doesn't get up till verse 8. He's on the ground. He's staying on the ground. And we're going to see further evidence in these next couple of verses that support how this moment is radically changing him. And it's changing him like this. Because he asks the question, who are you, Lord? Now, I don't know if you caught that the first time we just covered that. Who are you, Lord? He asks the question, and then the narrative, Luke's narrative, says, then the Lord said. The word Lord that Saul used and the word Lord that Luke uses is the same thing, same description. What this description Lord or this word Lord means, it means supreme in authority, omnipotent, all-powerful. All authority is in Jesus Christ. So we see that the same word that Saul uses is the same word that Luke uses. So we see that the question that Saul uses is directly tied to his posture. Who are you, Lord? Now, how does Jesus answer? He answers the same way twice. In verse 4, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He puts that in a question form. And then to respond to Saul's question in verse 5, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus made it personal. You see, because Saul was thinking all along, I'm killing off the heretics. I'm killing off the people that are anti-law, anti-pharisaical way of living life, I'm, kill, I'm killing off the heretics. Jesus is saying, no, you're persecuting me. Well, why would Jesus say that? See, because when somebody says something bad about one of God's kids, it's really on him. See, I, I see some young ones here today. And if somebody says something bad or does something bad to somebody else's kid, that's awful. We would probably be heartbroken, or we would have certainly some feelings of remorse about that. But I got a 14-year-old daughter sitting up here in the front row. Nobody better touch her. See, Jesus took it personally, but not from a point of bitterness, from a point of granting Saul perspective. See, because Saul had a one-track mind up to this point. He's now helping Saul to see your problem isn't with those people, your problem's with me. And see, if we are not open to allowing Christ in his glory 
his radiance, because that's exactly what happened here when he showed up. Everything changed. And Jesus is looking to continually show up in our lives. And I wonder, when's the last time he's done any bit of changing? See, because he's not off in some distant land somewhere. He wants, to, he wants us to abide in him. So Saul, little did he know, when Christ was showing up here, there were a bunch of things that were going to be a changing. And it wasn't even on his radar. When he was traveling to Damascus on this day, when he woke up that morning, he wasn't thinking, there's going to be this great big radiant light. I'm going to come face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, I'm not going to, I'm going to stop killing God's people and I'm going to become one of God's people. That was not on his radar that morning. I'm pretty sure of it. And little did this man Saul know, who would later become Paul, what was unique about him, see, we had the 12 apostles. We had Peter, James, and John and those guys. And then we had a lot of apostles later on. Paul is the bridge between both of them. See, because the apostles hung out with Jesus for a few years. The apostles later on don't see him at all. He sees him post-resurrection. And he's the bridge between them, which is really cool. But his position changes. One track mind, now, who are you, Lord? <laughs> and Joe read about, uh, you know, kicking against the goads. A lot of the translations don't have that because it's not in the original manuscript. But if you're wondering what a goad is, it's like the end of a sharp end of a stick. People would use that to keep cows and goats in order and stuff to get them where they wanted, wanted them to go. It's not up to you to determine where they go. Jesus is saying, it's up to me. And little did this man know where he was going to take him. So his position changes. Jesus feels the pain whenever we say something derogatory about another brother or sister in Christ. We do something bad. We look to get even, have problems with somebody. And look, that could take on any, any form. But according to this passage of Scripture, if we be even besmirch or gossip about or look to get even, throw another brother or sister under the bus. It's a form of persecution, and it, affect, it, it hurts Jesus. It hurts him a lot more than the person you're looking to throw under the bus. Well, not only does his posture change, it, his outlook changes. Now we're really going to get into some really neat things because this is the problem in modern day christendom is a lot of gospel messages get proclaimed and then oh people make professions of faith they come to know the lord and then it just stops there it's a get out of hell free card any of you like playing Monopoly, you like it, maybe getting that get out of jail free car, right? I play with my daughter all the time. She beats me. She lands on boardwalk and builds 15,000 hotels and I lose. But that's where we're at in modern day Christendom anymore in large part. See, Jesus wasn't looking to just change him in the moment. He was looking to change his life. Turn it around. And it's amazing to me how many people live and they don't even know why they're here. I'm not talking about our jobs, what we do to pay the electric bill, pay our mortgages, pay our food and clothes for our food and clothes. 
Why does God have us here? There's an issue of calling. See, because he wasn't looking to just change him in this moment. He ends up being led to Damascus. Turn back, if you will, a page or two real quick to Acts chapter 7. Beginning in verse 57. They cried out with a loud voice, stopping their ears, and ran at him with one accord. That him being Stephen. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Christ wasn't looking to just change this guy for the moment. Just to make him a child of of the family and, oh, wonderful. This man was a high and mighty. If there was ever a man that was never had a chance to be broken, like this man got broken, it would have been this guy. So you might be sitting here wondering, well, how does this apply to me? What, how does, what does this have to do with me? I'm just an ordinary Joe, no pun intended. But that's the point. If God could break this guy, he can certainly do that in any one of us. So he wasn't looking to just change him for the moment, but now everything changes. His outlook changes. Notice verse 6. I love this. It says, so he, trembling and astonished, he's still on the ground, and he's trembling and astonished, not on his radar that day, or any other day for that matter. There is something incredible going on. There is a shaking. There is something earth-shattering. He is riveted, captivated by this one that interrupted his journey to Damascus. He was almost there. And he says, or he asks the question, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I could imagine Jesus saying, I'm glad you asked. What do you want me to do? We go from Saul the persecutor to Saul the beholder. When's the last time we got a clear word from the Lord? I tell you, when someone beholds the Lord, you will get a clear word. That's a promise. See, because everything changed here. What do you want me to do, Lord? He's no longer viewed as the persecuted one. He is viewed as Lord. So finally, he gets up. In verse 8, the, men that are, the other men that are there, we don't know really who they are, other than maybe they were associates of his, and they help him up, and they lead him into, t- into town. Now, you might be saying, well, could have he rejected that? Sure. He could have went back the other way. He could have refused help. He could have not asked any questions. But no, he wanted to get, because the Lord told him, go into the city, and, and I'll get, you'll be told what you're going to be doing. Notice how he welcomed the help of these other guys. He wasn't fighting it. He wasn't resisting it. He was all in. So we see a dramatic shift in his posture and a dramatic shift in his outlook. And here's what changed. Not only in the here and now and within this passage, but here's what changed. This man, this persecutor, 
this ruthless murderer, this angry man, would end up writing most of the New Testament after the book of Acts. Planting churches all over the place. Leading people to Christ. And you may, not be, you may be thinking, well, he, yeah, he's a gifted guy. It was Paul. He became Paul the apostle only after this. In fact, he wasn't even that great of a speaker. The scriptures pretty much make that clear because the people at Corinth couldn't wait to hear the super apostles. They'd known of Paul. They'd heard Paul. Paul wasn't a gifted speaker, but there was something about Paul that radically transformed him, and it started here. But it kept going. It was his life. He was consumed with Jesus. So his posture changed, his outlook changed. His posture, his outlook. Position starts with P, outlook starts with O. P-O. Those of you in the business world may be familiar with what a P-O is or what a P-O stands for. It stands for purchase order. And a purchase order is pretty simple. It's an agreement between two different companies. What it is, is one company will say, we will deliver these goods, this many goods, to this location at this time. And the other company will say, yes, we'll receive those goods at this location at such a time in this volume, and we will agree to pay you this amount of money for that product. That's a purchase order. Well, there was a purchase order of heaven that Jesus was letting Saul know about. And this purchase order of heaven didn't come with some kind of flimsy paper that Jesus would sign with a pen or a pencil or some kind of crayon or something like that. Jesus would come and purchase what needed to be purchased with his own blood. If there was a document, he would have wrote it in his own blood. But not just write it in his own blood. Actually, the document would have been drowned, would have been drenched, would have been unidentifiable because it would have been absolutely saturated with his blood. Purchase order of heaven. But it doesn't stop there. The good news doesn't stop there because what did Mary and a few of the disciples do to get affirmation and confirmation that this purchase order was legit? They went to the grave, but they found it empty. So if you've come here this morning and you're not sure if your sin debt has been purchased, has been paid for. It has. But it must be accepted by faith. See, because then everything will change in your life. Have you had a rough week? Have you had a rough year? Have you had a rough life? Christ can turn it all around. When he shows up, everything changes. And that's what this man, this persecutor discovered. You may be here this morning and say, oh, I've accepted Christ. I'm part of the family. Praise God for that. But when is the last time we got a clear word? Has the issue of calling even been resolved? Have you gotten closure? What are we even here for? What are we supposed to be doing? Because that was Saul's question. What do you want me to do? What are we supposed to be doing? Not for a job, not for how we're going to raise our kids. What are we supposed to be doing for the kingdom of God? 
That is what Christ was up to in this man's life. Not just saving him, but transforming him and giving him the incredible purpose to serve the kingdom of God.